Welcome to the Stargate Archives, buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain. Greetings everybody, welcome to this episode of the Stargate Archives, and something new for this podcast. Not for the Gatecast, but for the Stargate Archives, we have a guest who is an author, a published author at that. Welcome to the show, Fox. Well, thank you for having me. Not a problem at all, this is a great pleasure. We got in contact via Twitter. Fox is one of those people involved with the Stargate that you haven't seen on screen in the show, but... As an author, he has actually published a Stargate-inspired story in the Points of Origin anthology, published by Fandemonium, a.k.a. Stargate Novels. Indeed. Anyhow, welcome to the show, Fox. Would you like to give us a little background information on your good self? Well, sure. I have been writing for a number of years since my youth, but I only started selling fiction to professional publishers probably around the age of 25. It does take a lot of effort and a lot of endurance to get you there. You have to endure a lot of rejection until you eventually begin figuring out what works and what doesn't. And then you finally sort of get to this place where the snowball begins collecting and rolling over time. You start getting published more and more. I live in Philadelphia with my wife, Allison. Um, I also say that I'm a lymphoma survivor. I'm a cancer patient, a modern bard and historian. My first book, The Street Martyr, was published by Gutter Books. And they're working on what was going to be a major motion picture, but now they're talking to Netflix about doing a series based on it. So that's very exciting and grueling and exhausting, and you need (laughs) need a lot of patience with that. So it's sort of cautious optimism. I did a book about Andy Kaufman and a more sort of modern novel called Destroying the Tangible Illusion of Reality or Searching for Andy Kaufman with Perpetual Motion Machine Publishing. And I did a book called Mercy about my experiences with cancer. It's a horror novel, horror thriller with bloodbound books. That's sort of my cancer trilogy, sort of. And like you said, um, I was lucky enough to get a story into the Stargate anthology Points of Origin from Pandemonium. And that was one of the great pleasures of my writing career. I'm a member of the Horror Writers Association, and I've probably at this point sold hundreds of short stories and articles. It really gets to be that much, though you have to sort out the professional ones versus the smaller ones, and you get the idea. And I'm also host and producer of What Are You Afraid of? Horror and Paranormal Show, which is on Para-X Radio at Friday nights, and you can find it online at all the major podcast services like yourself and over at our website at www.whatareyouafraidofpodcast.com. Excellent. There you go, folks. <laughs> a professional at work. <laughs> You're right about the anthologies. I had a quick look at what Amazon was offering Mercy and the Street Mortar stood out. I purchased them and I read both of them this week. And your and contributions to our anthologies just went on and on and on and on. That's a prolific writer. Well, thank you for buying my books, first of all. That's the eventual goal of all authors is to sell books and sell stories. And yeah. that's how you judge an author's success. It's, it's more about how much you've sold and how much money you're making as a professional. And I hate to say it, I mean, I'd love to say that I'm I'm just an artist out there putting my work out, but if you want to be a professional, you have to sell your work. And that's one of the reasons I'm here, is you're always looking for, for venues to get out your stuff. And like you're saying, I really built up a, a career with the anthologies, and it looks good on paper on your cover letter. 
And there were just so many publishers in indie publishing that I've worked with, many that sort of sprouted up, functioned for a few years, and then vanished when, when the editors and publishers got tired of doing it. But it's the professional credits, the ones that pay more, the ones that stay out there and have a fan base that really built your career. And how rights-wise do your short stories and that go to anthologies with publishers that fall by the wayside? Do you retain the rights over a period of certain time, or do they just kind of go into the mist as they are sold on to other publishers? It, it really depends on the contract you sign and what sort of rights that particular publisher wants. Sometimes I'll sell rights to a certain person as opposed to the publisher itself, and they'll maintain first publishing rights for three to five years, usually sometimes it's two years. And sometimes when you sell to the publisher itself, when the publisher goes under, it's considered good form to release all the rights back to the author, though reprints are much harder to sell and they don't make as much money. Yeah. I know a few authors I've read, I've had serious work tied up with other, you know, other publishers and have been delighted when they've got control back many, many years later and been you know, repackage, add and subtract and re-release. Some of my favourite work is actually, you know, stuff that I never even heard of years and years ago, but have been re-released by the author after rights issues have been tidied up. It's like getting new content. That's really the goal, is if you can sell the same story again and again, you're doing pretty well. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that is true. Right then, we are going to begin this conversation Hermiod's Last Mission, which was, as you said, your contribution to Points of Origin. Hermiod, as we know, was uh, the Asgard, which featured on uh, Stargate Atlantis, primarily on board the Daedalus. He featured in eight episodes, but really only had a speaking part, and I think in maybe five or six of them. Why exactly did you pick him, of all people? Because he was an undeveloped character. He had some excellent moments, and he was more of comic relief, really, and more of a sort of tension-building device. And when I considered approaching Fandemonium, and it was a shot in the dark, it really was, it was one of those lucky hits, and I was so surprised when it came back to me as a yes, I sent them the proposals, and I decided to pick Hermiot because he was undeveloped. He had just enough of a presence in the consciousness of the fans of Stargate Atlantis and Stargate in general, that he would be recognized, but they had never really spent too much time developing him besides the occasional um, plot fix or plot contribution and the one-liners that he would throw out sparring with Dr. McKay. Any character that can get a rise out of McKay, you think, I want to know more. Right, right, and he... He was a lot of fun to work with because there was, considering that we've met so many Asgard over the years, and they have a certain sort of nobility and a little bit of that arrogance that comes with being a senior, super-evolved race, even though the replicators kick their little gray butts. (laughs) And we sort of have an impression what the Asgard was like. And then you get Hermiod, and you get the idea that what did this guy do? or girl, we don't know, because they're genderless. What what did this creature do to get stuck on the Daedalus? Because I'm sure that wasn't his favorite job to do. I'm sure he had other things he wanted to do. But what did he do to get stuck with a bunch of humans schlepping across the galaxies for two or three weeks at a time and sort of following orders for Colonel Caldwell? And it's such an unusual um, 
joining of characters and he's definitely different. He's snarky. He talks down to authority. You know, he complains a lot. He's not what you would consider to be a classic Asgard. He's he's the runt of the litter. He's um, a, a bit of a reject from the race. And he's just, I just found it was so fascinating to write about and also knowing that he had not been developed before in stories and on the shows, everybody's always jumps to the main characters, you know, the showboating characters, but he was just sort of to the side. And I thought, you know, I could probably sell this concept and query much better to Fandemonium if I pick someone that had not been really developed. Yeah, certainly going to be fewer constraints on an author working with that sort of character. Right. You know, and it's fun because I, I've seen Wikipedia and I've seen the different Stargate fan sites that develop synopsis and information about the characters grow more and more about Hermiot, and most of it comes from my story and I developed a lot of that on my own and I was very pleased when the producers of Stargate had to approve it there was a process that went into that where it would go to Sally Malcolm and she would edit the story and send it back to me and I would do more edits and send it back to her and then she had to send it to to the producers such as Deloise and the other uh, producers to get their approval and then she sent it back to me with their notes and I had to edit it and they had to approve it. And it was just such a wonderful moment when I looked on the Wikipedia site and saw that it had that canon stamp on it. And then I had contributed something to one of the greatest science fiction television shows and stories in history. Indeed. The whole Asgard in Stargate are an inspired creation by themselves. Thor, as you say, is preeminent. But as you actually say in the story, Thor is too close to humanity to, you know, actually bring a reasoned and logical decision over the big question mark that hangs over the Asgard and humanity. We'll get to that in a bit, though. We'll go through a few of the episodes of uh, Atlantis where Hermiod features, starting with The Siege Part 3. Unfortunately for the... <laughs> I think they get the idea that he's male, but as you say, it doesn't really matter with the Asgard. Well, they have nothing to hide. That is true. <laughs> You've got a you know, thing when... Uh, John Shepard first meets him and gives him that look and, you know, says, should he be naked? Mm -hmm. As yes. if it really matters, you know, he's a bit like Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck. You know, they never put clothes on when they came out of a bathtub. You scratch your head at that. Indeed. Yeah, we meet him in the siege, uh, working with Novak, another one of my favourite smaller characters in the show. Ellie Harvey played Novak. Of course, we first introduced her when she had, I think, a, was it a hiccuping or a sneezing fit? Hiccuping, I think it was. I think it was hiccuping, yes. Yeah. Stargate, like a few of the Vancouver-based shows, ran for a long time, so eventually everybody in the uh, Vancouver acting pool got a job on Stargate. Right, it was a very local show, and um, but they, they found some wonderful talent of just untried actors that contributed well to the show. First introduction to him, he has a quick uh, chat with Novak, and of course we get it straight away. He mutters to himself... And you think, if that was a human being, that would be somebody who's not happy, who's annoyed about something. Right there and then, you, you think, oh, this isn't a normal Asgard. Even Loki, who was, if you like, a bad Asgard, was still an Asgard. You recognise the traits. Hermiod, not so much. It's like I was saying, you get the idea that, that Hermiod was an outcast from his people. 
and sort of sent to do this job that, that nobody wanted to do. I'm sure the other Asgard were busy saving the universe or creating great energy machines or fighting off evil races and, of course, battling with the replicators, which, which was a terrible shame and, and their great downfall as their technology became their Achilles heel, which is why, of course, they kept going back to the humans who had visions and ideas um, outside of the Asgard mindset. They'd just gotten so stuck in their technology as their way of life, forgoing other philosophies and religion and elements like that. And eventually it led to terrible limitations, which, of course, the ancients themselves used technology, but in a pursuit of culture and spirituality that led them to ascension. Yeah, <laughs> let's not get started on the ancients. We think of them as the glorious light of the universe, but when you get right down to it, they they were as broken as humanity in many ways. They just have bigger toys to play with. That's very true. They made a lot, a lot of mistakes and bad decisions. McKay often says, just another great failure after another series of failures. Yes, but McKay can fix it. Right. <laughs> have no fear. Which is one of, one of the beauties of... As you said, Rodney McKay and Hermiod clash of egos, and it is ego. You know, we know Rodney's very egotistical, but Hermiod himself, he doesn't want to be there. He's better than this. He knows it. He's not happy about the fact that they convince him to use uh, the beaming technology to deliver nuclear warheads onto Wraith ships. Perfectly logical argument to be made. You know, if we don't, we might all die. It's not technically using Asgard technology as a. Uh, you know, a first strike weapon or anything like that, but certainly he's lending a hand into the slaughter of thousands of beings. It's not something the Asgard take lightly. And I appreciate that. And it's, you get the idea that the Asgard were always trying to be noble and always trying to be, you know, above, above these sorts of things and following a certain philosophy of altruism and pacifism. But in the end, they were realists. Too. And after the arguments are made, you know, it's like when they fixed the Katal sun and they knew there were treaties, they knew they shouldn't become gods or get involved in the development of other races, especially after what the Gould did. But they also realized that it's not a perfect universe and sometimes you have to do things outside the scope of your own philosophy. It's easy to live by a rule, not so much so when you know that rule could kill thousands or kill a whole world when you could do very, very little to make a huge difference. It's one of the things Star Trek has always had a problem balancing their prime directive. Should we just stand aside and let that meteorite hit the planet? It's a natural order after all. Or, uh, you know, intervene, even if it means that the people on the planet learn that there's something out there. Stargate, a little more practical, you know. Right. <laughs> Everybody knows there's aliens. Everybody knows there's spaceships. Even, you know, on primitive worlds, 99 times out of 100, they were put there by the gold. So let's not worry about it. Well, I mean, they, they live in a real universe. What can you yes, do? Exactly. It's a gray area, yeah. A universe that has Star Trek, that has Star Wars, that has pizza, that has Jell-O wrestling. <laughs> Flavor Jell-O. Green? I like the green. I think it was just plain Jell-O wrestling. It was a, a boys' night out, I believe, with Tilk and uh, Jack. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right, yes. When they um. That's right, it was... um. I have heard of a place where warriors do battle in Jello. That's it. <laughs> I'll call Daniel. <laughs> All right, we get to another episode that Permiod features in, The Intruder, uh, season two of Atlantis. The Daedalus again. The show featured 
mostly the recollections of their experiences back on Earth after spending a year on Atlantis. And it was not very comfortable. They were trying to force staff changes. And so we saw a review of their experiences on Earth as they were flying back. Yeah, that sounds about right. Hermiota McKay, butting heads throughout the episode. McKay doesn't like anybody to question his decisions, question his mythology. He doesn't accept that anybody could be more intelligent than him. That includes the ancients, always includes Zelenka. Though, in practical matters, you'd say Zelenka is nearly his match. Hands-on, maybe even more so. I like Zelenka. I like Zelenka too. <laughs> yeah. It was, I, I hate to say it, but Zelenka is not infallible. That is true. Nobody is, though. That's the yeah. beauty of it. There, there are no perfect people in Stargate. That's just a wonderful quote from Brodney that he did in that one episode where, I hate to say it, but Zelenka is not infallible, where he was referring to himself, of course. <laughs> what, I, what I liked about Intruder was that it's, it's one of my favorite episodes. In fact, I was just watching it before we contacted each other, and it's it's set on the ship, it's set on the Daedalus, in between galaxies, basically. Well, not in between, but they're, they're flying towards uh, the Pegasus galaxy at that point. But instead of having access to thousands of worlds with a Stargate in this huge city, it's this small, walled-off setting where you really have to see the characters' personalities and plot features and interactions based on fixing a problem with a sentient enemy in a tight area so it's really more about the people than it is about the setting it's a very clear example which a lot of tv shows have to handle you have a big budget movie they've got unlimited funds for cgi for set pieces they don't have to worry too much about small character pieces a little scene the 30 seconds here that just adds a layer to a character a show like stargate always operates on a budget ever listen to the commentaries the writers, the directors, producers would always say, if we spent $50,000 extra on this episode, we had to take it from another episode. It forced them to be creative. It forced them to focus on the smaller things. I mean, you could argue this was a bottle show. It's all set on the Daedalus, but it's got some nice CGI. It's got Hermiod, wonderful writing. I don't think Stargate ever really let us down on the writing front. We, we, we get, as I said earlier, Shepard, Uncomfortable around Hermiod. A, he's an alien. B, he's naked. Don't stare. You hate it when people stare. Am I the only one who thinks it's strange we're working with an alien? Intergalactic hyperdrive technology is kind of new to us, so we need his help. Is he supposed to be naked like that? Rodney, not happy because someone's smarter on board the ship. If I may be so bold, what exactly are we looking for? Any indication that someone's been tampering with the ship's computers? Perhaps you could be more specific. Not really, no. <sighs> what was that? Nothing. Coldwell. Coldwell is a decent character in this episode. I didn't always like... I love Mitch Pileggi. Didn't always like Coldwell. Maybe because he was the out-and-out military man and clashed a lot with Weir. Right, and it was just such a nice... Um... They saw the potential of the relationship. I mean, everything, of course, had been military, so there was very little conflict with the civilian authority, which was definitely something that was going to come up, especially with the military and its point of view controlling exploration. And what did, what did Weir say? This wagon, or not wagon train, this uh, manifest destiny to the stars has to stop. And, and then Caldwell's brought in to have a conflict with 
you know, Weir, who's a civilian authority working for the IOA. So the authors really knew how to generate drama and conflict in the relationships of the people and not just, say, fighting an evil alien race. Yes, it would have been... Stargate may have ended after its five years run on Showtime if it hadn't embraced the bigger picture, the bigger storytelling. You look at shows maybe like Andromeda, Earth Final Conflict, they were around at a similar time. They were more episode of the week, more constrained, and people don't remember them like they do Stargate. Granted, Stargate ran for a lot longer. I don't think there's the love or the passion there. Right, and I, I completely agree, though. It's it's that idea of the syndicated show versus a major network or sci-fi. And when sci-fi embraced Stargate and saw its potential, and that was at the same time that Farscape, remember that Friday night here in America, it was uh, it was Stargate and Farscape, the two men of sci-fi Fridays. And it was, of course, Jack O'Neill and who was the name of the um, Farscape? John Crichton. John Crichton, right? See, I, I heard John Shepard and John Crichton. My, my mind got confused. <laughs> and, and of course, uh, Farscape was cancelled. And it was terrible because sci-fi had granted them three more seasons. And we were so excited. And then a few weeks later, out of the blue, they looked at their finances and said, we're done with Farscape. We're done with anything that requires major special effects budgets. We're going to keep Stargate going because it's a lot of humans... Um, you know, a planet that looks like the forests of Canada. And we're going to bring in uh, shows like Who Can Scare Who More? You know, those live-action reality uh, shows. The that... dark times of sci-fi. Yeah. The sci-fi channel is a strange business. got to admit, they did go through a time when it seemed the last thing they wanted to touch the show was science fiction programming. But then you look at The Expanse and you think, well, I've got to give them props for backing The Expanse and sticking with it for three seasons. Thankfully, Amazon have picked up the fourth, but mm -hmm. every now and again, they make a decent decision. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were showing wrestling for a while. It was it was a bother. Unfortunately, it got an audience. I can end it right around then. BBC America got popular on cable stations in America, and they yeah. really became the foremost of sci-fi, of course, with Doctor Who as their flagship. Yeah, BBC America is one of those strange channels. Cherry picking it, it's good for the UK TV industry to get the dedicated outlet in the States. It's definitely Doctor Who and uh, the BBC America, of course, and the private. And, I, and, I, and of course, BBC was once a, um, a public trust, and now it's gone mostly to private, you know, the different companies and cable that's happened. But BB, the BBC and the, Briti the British uh, nation have definitely led sci-fi into the modern era of television. Uh, this isn't BBC America, but particularly looking forward to Good Omens, which will be released oh, yes. in a couple of months. David Tennant and... Uh, I'm looking forward to that also. Yes, I've owned multiple copies of that book over the years. <laughs> I've not read it yet. It's on my list. Oh, you, you should. I don't know if I'd say, re like with all books, the question is, do you read it before the adaptation or after? Yeah, good point. I've been wondering that myself. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be different. I mean, I've looked at the casting and, you know, some parts you think, well, that's going to be a bigger part than in the book. And you never know, really. But I'm pretty sure the new TV adaptation is going to be fantastic either way. Well, well, both genres or, and both formats have particular needs that, I mean, I've people always asked me if I was going to write scripts like based on The Street Martyr. In fact, uh, Throughline Films asked me if I was interested in doing something like that. And I said, no, I've spent the majority of my life studying to write the written word. 
and visual is just such an entirely different concept. And a lot of authors think that they can, if they can write a book, they can write a script. And no, no, it's it's an entirely different animal. Right. As we said in the Intruder, uh, they're fighting against a, an alien virus that's embedded itself in the in the Daedalus systems. Some great interaction again between Hermiod and Rodney. Hermiod and pretty much everybody. Crap. What did you do? I just ran through a translation program. It's great. Crap, indeed. So I think the intruder is more of an action episode than I gave it credit for. It's very much, it's classically written in a dramatic structure. It's, they, you know, they create a problem and then they're playing this game of chess with the Wraith virus, which I always got the feeling like they didn't write the entire virus. Like it, it evolved from an ancient bit of programming they discovered and they twisted it and sort of, you know, turned it into a Wraith program because, you know, because yeah. they discovered that there was an ancient language involved in the creation of it. It just seemed, you know, a lot of the Wraith did what the ghoul did. They found the ancient technology and uh, built it for for their own needs and turned into biological creations. When you get right down to it, you can always blame the ancients for everything. <laughs> I know. It's all their fault. I don't know if you've read any of the, the Legacy series. I have. I love the work the authors have done expanding upon the uh, heritage of the Wraith. Right, yes. And I, from what I understand, that was all based on material that was supposed to come out if Atlantis had continued. I know they were planning another season. They were planning a couple of movies, and it didn't work Didn't work out with MGM, especially with MGM's financial issues. But from what I understand, that a lot of that came from canon material that had been developed by the original authors. And incredible writers like Sally Malcolm and her team just, just took it and continued telling the story and, and giving the Wraith more personality and giving them names and... Just of course, I love Guide, you know, based yeah. on based on Todd, and he's just such a wonderful character. And it was, I, I've mostly read it for him, and it's well, it's a whole new layer to their culture. You know, originally they hinted that well, they didn't hint; they actually, you know, said that terraforming by the ancients, a mistake with Aratus bug, led to the development of the Wraith, and that seems reasonable. You know, I can understand that in a science fiction series; it makes sense. Going one step further, that the ancients were actively trying to create something that went so terribly wrong fits as well. Again, it goes back to um, the, the idea of the ancients where hubris and vanity had brought them to the point where they no longer believed themselves of unleashing horrors upon the universe. And they were struggling for immortality. They were struggling for ascension and looking for, for shortcuts. And according to the books, the wraith were really a victim species that were created by the ancients, misunderstood as parents. And of course, they talk about the three species that the ancients were parents of, and then hunted to the point, you know, to the point of extinction. Yeah, I say it's not the first time the ancients have created some form of intelligent life, then decided that the best way to deal with it is to eradicate it totally off the face of the galaxy. Like the replicator race. Yeah. The assurance. Right, we jump over next to uh, Critical Mass, which is the... <laughs> Uh, well, the an idea good. Then idea good for some things in this episode. You know, they actually figure out that the trust have been uh, messing around with Atlantis, at least in a small way. They know about what's going on, and that, that planted explosive device on the Daedalus. Oh joy! <laughs> right. 
this this was another fun episode. Again, it's another microcosm dealing. I mean, the episode begins, and when it ends, the plot ends. You know, it's not a longer story or an episodic story with chapters. It's it's a wonderful data list, and you get to see some Stargate in it. You know, back at the SGC, which is always fun, and we get to see Landry again, and we get to see the characters there. And, of course, um, we find out that the Gould are back. And the Gould, you know, they, they may be gone as a galactic power, but they're still going to be a terrible pain in the bum. Yep. <laughs> and we get Hermiod facing off Kavanaugh. Right. Oh, oh, yes. <laughs> and you thought Absolutely Robbie was bad. priceless. I don't see how you can possibly milk any more power out of the hypertrons. Dr. Kavanaugh. Yes. Stop talking, please. Thank you. Nobody likes a character, but you've got to love the performance by Ben Cotton. Wonderful writing, wonderful performance, the character everybody loves to hate, and the fact that Hermione doesn't like him either. <laughs> right, Kavanaugh was, um, it's nice that a series can evolve and progress and say that we're not all happy-go-lucky, fun-loving people, there are definitely some malcontents that have something to contribute. And we all can be a little socially inadequate. We all can have abrasive personalities. And so, I mean, he gets under your skin so delightfully. Yeah. It's totally understandable that, you know, too often a sci-fi series will say, this person is from this planet, they have got this particular trait. All Ferengi are money-obsessed, profit-obsessed, sexist little creatures only after you open that up and look beyond certain characters and say oh there's this character yeah they like money but they also like this they also like that Kavanaugh is a typical well not a typical human an example of the variation in humanity he's an intelligent man he's good at his job he doesn't get on very well with other people he probably expected taking this assignment to be a big stepping stone in his career and he found that there are, he's working with people who are a lot more intelligent than him, a lot more savvy with the political nature of an office environment, working within the scientific community. And now there's this alien who's also just disregarding him. The fact that Hermione turned around and just says, stop talking, please. And it's funny with that episode, of course, Kavanaugh gets suspected. Yes, he does. And it's terrible because um, Ronan comes in. It's like he's actually going to physically torture him, which is weird allows us. And I can appreciate the pressure that he's under, but I, I think it was very unfair to Kavanaugh. And it makes him sympathetic, which is very hard to do. The fact that they just picked him because he speaks out against the establishment, because he doesn't try to hide his feelings, because he is critical. And it's like if the trust was going to send somebody, it wasn't going to be someone like Kavanaugh. And, and again, you feel bad for the guy because they're going to torture him. Yeah, if, if anything, you would operate within the shadows of Kavanaugh. Po point him out. Everybody is looking at him. Yeah, you know, I have read people have said a lot of the you know a lot of the criticisms Kavanaugh makes are legitimate. There is a kind of this well, not an old boys network, but Weir has a favored people, just like SG One are the favored sons and daughters of Stargate Command. They get the best jobs. They get the time needed to make their arguments. And on Atlantis, you know, if you're not part of Rodney's little circle, you're going to get the slim pickings of everything else. Right, it's very much a meritocracy. Yeah. And, and a lot of people don't have room to shine there. And, of course, they tighten up the ranks and protect their careers. And, you know, in Kavanaugh, like, he not only doesn't 
progress in the ranks and become recognized for his genius, but he also gets treated like a terrorist. So he's got a point. And then just to rub salt in the wound, he's the uh, kind of the laughing stock because he fainted when somebody like Ronin approached him intent on violence. Which most people would do. I mean, <laughs> yes. I, d- I don't think I'd be raising my fist and saying, come on, then I'm ready for you. But I've got to say, bravo to the authors that recognize that they had created this sort of establishment that you were talking about, this meritocracy, and they bring in Kavanaugh to sort of laugh at their own work and to say, hey, this isn't the best situation, you know, that we do need some dissent here. Yeah, it'd be too easy just to have everybody playing the yes-men. The, the whole idea of the, the extended cast would just be boring if every new character just, yes, yes, sir, yes, sir, you're right, sir, you're right. And you know what? It's it's. I've always thought about this. I've had conversations with friends about this. And Stargate was very much an American-driven television show when it was created. And it, it shows the military in a wonderful light. And everyone's a hero. And, and everyone's democratic. And everyone goes out into the universe and spreads American and democratic values to every other planet. And they're fighting the evil ghoul, which is the ultimate bad guy. And you have a lot of these, these concepts of this fun-loving happy-go-lucky, democratic, American military establishment. So it was very popular in the in this country. And then they created Stargate Universe, went entirely against that concept, and it killed it. It absolutely killed it. Um, my friend Deborah Drake, she called it a grim and humorless show, and it stopped, show- <laughs> it stopped showing the military as this wonderful great organization that's there to spread chocolate bars and democracy across the world and started criticizing it a little bit and it killed it because the majority of especially the american public didn't care for it they wanted to see the red white and blue shining across chulak you know yeah i thoroughly enjoyed stargate universe when it was broadcast first run over here in the uk although i will not question anybody who says they could not get through the first half season because it's low-paced, it's deliberate, there is no joy in it, it's dark, it's gritty, it's depressing. Yet, I believe that when they get into the second season, they know what they're doing. A lot of the humour, never as much as SG-1 or Atlantis, but they know where the characters are going. And some of the banter between the people on board Destiny was classic Stargate. But by that time, it was too late. They'd lost the core audience... And only the holdouts were, were tuning in every week. Unfortunately, not enough of them. I love Dr. Rush. He's a wonderful... But again, he's, he's a bit dark. He's got a lot of failings. And there's this danger, and I see it a lot in the writing community. And that's where you want to create something beautiful that will be remembered throughout time, that is terribly human, that is flawed, that is pure art. But you forget your market. You forget that people are reading you not because they want to be, well, first, not eventually, but not because they want to be uplifted or evolved, but they want to be entertained. They want to be distracted. So if you get rid of that humor, if you bring in that darkness, if you remind people of the darker things in their lives, they're not going to watch it as much because they're looking for diversion. And you you can never forget that first your job is, especially with a television show, to entertain people. And then maybe you can sneak in a little art and a little evolution. And I think I think just the, the creators of Stargate wanted to do something different and they forgot that connection with their audience. Yeah, I agree. I think at that point, they, they probably thought, look, 
we've been doing shows this style for so long, we all want to do something different, something a bit bit off the wall. Obviously, looking at Battlestar, they thought, yeah, this will work. There is an audience for it. Obviously, MGM thought as well, because they backed Universe. They gave them a, a very decent budget. And production-wise, it shows. The show is glorious. Gorgeous. Even now, it is glorious. Mind you, Atlantis still looks fantastic. SG-1, not so much, because it was filmed on 16mm, then 35mm uh, before they switched to HD in the last few seasons. I look at Stargate Universe and... So disappointed we didn't get to see more of it, but totally understandable why we didn't. Well, in the end, it's it's here to make money. And, you know, writing books like Andy and writing The Street Martyr, I picked The Street Martyr because it was a crime thriller and it was a commercial, it's a commercial success. I mean, it went on to, it's still going on to do some, some very cool things. But you compare it to Destroying the Tangible Illusion of Reality, which was a book more about my experiences with cancer and Andy Kaufman. It's its very esoteric. When I wrote it, I never expected it to be a bestseller. It's going to be the kind of book that sort of infiltrates over time, reaching people, but it, it's more spiritual as opposed to that fun, strong, compelling energy of the street martyr, or even mercy. Yep. Our next experience of Hermione is in Inferno. Not uh, an episode that he features a lot of, mainly he's he's doing a lot of uh, countdown. The team visit a planet where there's a an ancient outpost using geothermal energy to power a planetary shield, which they've been using constantly. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, that has put so much strain on the planet's core. Super volcano, basically. <laughs> Wipe out right. all life on the planet. Yay! Yeah, well, that's, and again, the danger of when a lesser evolved or lesser advanced race finds these toys and uses them, and they had a good reason to use them, obviously, but doesn't quite understand their dangers and all the dynamics. And I know Rodney often declares that he's competent enough to use them, but of course he blew up a solar system, so he's just as guilty. Oh, yes. The only thing we can hope from that is that he did learn from his mistakes. The fact that he felt he probably felt worse about betraying the trust John and Elizabeth put in him than actually destroying the solar system. Well, it was a it was an empty solar system that hadn't been used uh, in centuries. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, true, true. Yeah. Kind of like wrecking that old car that that no one really cares about anymore. <laughs> Inferno is one of my favorites. It just has again, it's it's a single episode. It doesn't have a lot of um, saga in it. It doesn't carry on the bigger story. It's got Hermione in it, the Daedalus in it. Um, Caldwell's really good in it. And you're fighting just, you know, a natural feature. And it's such a neat idea. And I don't know, it just really had a depth to it that I've always gone back to it as one of my favorites. Yeah, I like the fact that they're trying to come up with solutions and Hermione points out, well, there is one. Colonel, I'm attempting to calculate the precise time remaining before the main eruption. We should try to land. The planet's surface is far too unstable to attempt any landing. So our only option is to sit here and wait? There is one other option. What? We could leave. We leave. We could leave. The logical... Practical, yeah. Yeah, exactly what you'd expect. You don't have to hang around here. Yeah, he had already written off most of the people at that point in his mind with the, you know, a different engines of logic and... This is what the Asgard were missing. That spark of, we can never give up, there's always an option, we don't know what it is, but if we keep looking until we can't look anymore. 
right when they reached the limitations of their technology they didn't see anything beyond it i mean the simple idea of shotguns shells you know oh we we never thought of that although at some point in their history they must have had that sort of uh, weapon but so far in the past right at, at one point they were of species that appreciated adventure you know like talking about um what was it revelations where Osiris attacks underground science lab and it's Humdol there and he discovers an ancient member of his own species 30,000 years prior and they talked about how the Asgard were launching space missions that used cryogenic and, and hibernation and they were obviously exploring the galaxy at that point they still had a quality of youth to them that their explorations eventually sort of led it in a circle back where they got they got trapped in their own technology and trapped in their own gene splicing. It was kind of a, a slow process that they didn't see what was happening. Sort of like when you when you slowly boil a frog and it doesn't know what's happening to it over time. And by the time they realized what had happened, it was too late. And that is one of my favorite episodes because we have Heimdall in it. And he is, again, he's very different from the Asgard that we know. And he, he comes down the railing and he's like, Oh, humans! You know, he's so excited to see them and meet them. Handel, was he voiced by Terrell Roffrey? Yes, I believe he was. I read that, and it was it was Doctor Fraser, right? I mean, yeah, that's right. Voice. <laughs> it never occurred to me, but the Asgard, the way you put it, remind me of the Kryptonians. Oh, that's a very good point. Again, the idea of these these ancient races reaching the apex of their evolution, and yeah, then suddenly with nowhere else to go. So they kind of withdraw on themselves and look inwards. I'm reminded of Heinlein's Childhood's End with the yeah. um, the species that comes to Earth and they're acting as caretakers. I, I can't remember the name of them off the top of my head, but they couldn't evolve to the next level. They were stuck and that was it for them. And eventually they would just sort of stagnate, lose that energy and die off. There's probably a lot to the argument that in terms of lifespan, the human race is just about right. We can live long enough to actually achieve something, but not long enough to ever get complacent. We're always going to be forced to keep moving, keep looking forwards, keep pushing outwards. And that's the nature of death. That's because we have death. And even, even the ancients say ascension is just the beginning of the journey. It's a nice thought. It's one of those that <laughs> there's no proof either way. And by the time you figure it out, you, well, you, by then you know, don't you? Well, philosophy is all well and good, but it doesn't change anything. We're stuck. You know, whatever yeah. happens is going to happen. Make the most of what you've got right now. Right, then we move on to Allies, which is uh, Michael Kenmore. One of the more interesting creations of uh, Atlantis, literally. Right, played by um, Trevor Kinnear. Was that the name that I'm thinking of? Connor. Connor. Connor Trenier, right. And of yeah. course, he was in... Stargate, or I'm sorry, Enterprise, it wasn't Star Trek Enterprise, it was Enterprise as Trip, and he was the sort of McCoy Southern character, and I really liked him in Enterprise. He was a, a good counter-character for Scott Bakula as, as Archer, and he comes in playing this wonderful villain with so many levels, and there are times you feel such sympathy for him, but you know, he's an outcast. He's been outcast by the humans, by his own species that believes in genetic purity of the wraith. And, you know, he and he becomes the ambassador and then he evolves and rises to become his own supervillain. And probably I would say he was the primary antagonist of at least the first five seasons of Stargate. He 
he lasted a long time, you know, in the different episodes. And we never quite know if he died or not at the end. Who knows? He he had an ancient shield or somebody picked him up and, you know, they always left the potential of bringing him back. He was a fantastic character and demonstrates that humanity at our point are just as capable of arrogance and short-sightedness and making incredibly bad decisions as the ancients ever were. It was, to this day, when we talked about this series of episodes on the Gatecast podcast, Beckett was doing some terrible things when you think about it. Mm. What they were doing to that wraith, you can argue, oh, it was for their own good, we're going to turn them back into humans, or, you know, well, not, not back into humans, but take out the wraith, but totally unconcerned how this would impact them. They'll be, they'll be fine, they'll love us for it. Such arrogance. Right, and war justified it in their minds. We're at war, so we can suspend morality. And I always thought that too, what the poor things they were doing to these, to the wraith who were just fulfilling their nature, and in their mindset, they weren't, they weren't cruel. They didn't torture the chattel, they called them in the books. Yeah. They didn't torture the humans. They bred them. They limited their technology, of course, but to them, it was just a food source. It was a means of survival. And what the humans were doing was just inflicting suffering on the wraith itself for their own. And, you know, Atlantis did suspend morality in the name of necessity. And what, what is, what did Michael, not Michael, what did Todd say? You are more like wraith than you know. <laughs> That's something that Quark uh, the Ferengi is also said mm -hmm. in Star Trek. When you take away humanity's, you know, food and clean clothes, sonic showers, mm -hmm. they are just as dangerous as any Klingon. Right. And all the comforts and the security that the technology brings in, and they'll, they'll revert. Humans. I always loved Quark. The rules of acquisition. What was it? The rules of acquisition 115. Peace is good for business. Rule of acquisition 116. War is good for business. <laughs> Armin Shinnerman did uh, appear in uh, Stargate SG-1 in the Nox as well. He did. He was a Nox, right, in the, one of the yeah. early episodes. Also, Principal in Buffy, the Vampire Slayer. And he was on, um, I know Boston Legal drew a lot from the, from the Star Trek series. So he was on, um, he played a judge a couple of times. And, and of course, uh, different characters like um, other judges like uh, Neelix from Star Trek Voyager. He played a judge on Boston Legal. And of course, you had... William Shatner is one of the main characters and various stuff like Odo. He was one of the main lawyers and it was just really cool to see them all together again. I do love when I, I spot somebody uh, from the cast of Stargate. I, I know him too, too well, but nah, I know it's good or bad, but especially cast and crew. When I see something directed by somebody who's worked on Stargate. Oh, great. I watch that. Right. And um, of course, uh, Carter, uh, her name eludes me. The characters, I'm sure you know it. Amanda Tapping. Amanda Tapping went on to get involved with Travelers on Netflix, which was just a phenomenal series. I don't know if you've seen Travelers or not, but she... Yes, I have, yes. Oh, and she had the character of the psychiatrist in that one, and that was... She was incredible in that, but a great episode. Yeah, gone on to have good directing uh, career as well. As often they do. After that, O'Neill, he was done with it after being MacGyver, and I think he's pretty much retired from the industry. But you see... You see Shepard, he had a couple of episodes of Fringe, where he gets killed pretty quickly, but... <laughs> yes, he did. I sat down to watch that and think, oh, great. Oh, that was quick. <laughs> yeah, he, Shapeshifter kills him in the first episode. 
I'm pretty sure that's how they they bring in the character of Lincoln, and of course Pat, you know, Mitch Pileggi from from X Files, which is shown on BBC America a lot now. And I wasn't a big fan of X Files, but I enjoy, I can appreciate it. But I too like to watch. And of course, I'm sorry, the names are all the names are eluding me today. It's been quite a morning. But uh, <laughs> Doctor Rush, played by. Go ahead and jump in here anytime. Dr. Rush played by... I've done 40 episode podcasts on Stargate Universe, and I used to watch Once Upon a Time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dr. Rush, he, he was a... Oh, Scottish. Yeah. Robert Carlyle. There we go. Right. Of course, he was considered to play Doctor Who, and they offered it to him to be the Doctor instead of, I believe it was Matt Smith, and he turned it down and did, um, I believe it was Stargate instead. I think he went on record in saying, you know, when he got the script, he, he was ridiculously impressed how good it was. And, of course, he was thinking of his career, which is really important to do. And he was thinking of American television, which I know is a dream of a lot of British actors. And they think, well, what was that I heard? Making it in America is a big deal to a lot of British actors that I've heard. I, I think money-wise, mm-hmm. America's the place to be. The BBC, the ITV, the, you know, the independent channels in the UK... You're never going to get incredibly wealthy by starring in British productions. You'll get a name. You'll make a name for yourself. You'll get awards. If you want to be comfortably well off, one decent run in a series in the States will pad your bank account very nicely. Right. And there are a lot of British actors in American television. A lot of them you don't realize are British because they don't. Because they good accents. They have to do an American accent. It's um, like a, The Walking Dead. Lincoln, he's yeah. he's British, and and of course you see them with their original accents, and it feels off to you because you know them from seeing with speaking with American accents. But if you have a trained ear, I can claim some British. You know, my family born in Scotland. I've spent a lot of time there. I was married in Scotland. I took my wife back to Edinburgh, and I speak Gaelic. And if you can listen to them speaking, they drop O's, and there are certain things that break through the language that that their American coaches didn't hear, and you can kind of hear it sneaking through. Well, again, we're off topic, though. <laughs> yeah, It happens. Hermiod again features in No Man's Land. Oh, right, this is about Hermiod. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not really a, a huge part. He's once again stuck in engineering. Uh, he really needs to uh, get out in the field a bit more. And it was no man's land that I decided to set my story, Hermione's last mission, right after, because we don't see a lot of him after that. We, of course, we only have a couple of episodes, so we see him in, or that he's mentioned. But it was. Yeah, that's right. I wanted to set a story in the aftermath of Michael's attempted attack on Earth, and in my story, it features an ancient city. And in my story, it wasn't just Atlantis that had launched from Antarctica. They had had ancient cities on other planets after the plague. And they sort of created a caravan, a wagon train to the Pegasus galaxy. But some of them didn't make it because, the you know, the journey between galaxies is full of peril. And they were just surviving a terrible plague. They didn't have the resources. So I wanted to do something that was set in between galaxies, because why had no one had never found this abandoned ancient city before? So I needed to set it at a time and place where they were sort of stuck between galaxies or investigating. You know, I wanted the wraith to start off, so I picked after No Man's Land because that was heavily featured there. For a moment there, it was kind of the big cliffhanger 
how many Wraith Hives have got the, uh, the advanced hyperdrive, what sort of threat are they, can we intercept them in time. They made a big play of it, it worked very well. Yeah, we never quite knew exactly what you were saying. Who got the technology? How many Wraith joined my goal? And I had to jump on that because I wanted to keep my story very much in canon. In fact, that was a requirement when I did the story. So, you know, I spent a lot of time going back through the episodes and finding threads that I could take. And, you know, instead of writing in the limitations set by a lot of the other writing that I could really go crazy with and expand on it and sort of develop my own little little world in my story. It doesn't hurt either that the writers and the producers of the Stargate franchise have you on the road deck. Well, I can hope. That's always been the dream, is that one day they would come back and realize their own misbegotten author and say, Fox, <laughs> Fox, we need you to continue the story of Stargate Universe. Only you can do it with your amazing imagination. And then I wake up and realize that it is a limited franchise still and that they really did come close to dying off after the failure of Stargate Universe and the failure and the death of MGM and its well, of course, the financial issues that it had. And, and then the, the terrible death and mishandling of the Stargate MMO that we were also excited and disappointed with when it, when it died off. And now you have a core of authors that continue the stories and the novels, but they sort of run out of material to go with now. And everyone's turning their attention to the, to the attempted, the new series that they're doing with, with MGM right now that I've not seen yet. Is it any good? Do you mean the web series? Yeah, the web series, right. Stargate Origins. Yes. For its budget, it's fine. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody really expected or thought, this is a good idea, this is what we want. But A, it's better than nothing, and at least MGM is showing an interest in the franchise. Unfortunately for Brad Wright, Travelers got cancelled, but he, that means he's available if MGM are serious about doing a proper Stargate show. Because who else would you want on board helming it? Martin Wood, too. I would love to have Martin Wood come back and, and do some of this. But again, it's yeah, they seem to be dipping their toes back into the water with, with graphic novels and comic books and the new web series and seeing if there is, see what sort of financial response we get. And it's, it's possible that Stargate may have run its, um, its profitability and now they need to look to other, other projects and other concepts. And I suppose we can all cross our fingers as Stargate fans, but they really, if they want to do it properly, they need, a, they need to relaunch things. They need to sort of come up with new stories and new ideas. And that's very hard to do when you have so much background that sort of set the course. How do you create new fans or how do you satisfy the old? Without getting too deep into the argument is my main issue with Star Trek Discovery. I am an old school Star Trek fan. I was watching TOS in... The in the mid-70s, the reruns on BBC. So I've grown up with Star Trek. When you do prequel and you say you're going to honour the existing canon, you choose to do a prequel, you choose to do a show based on existing IP because there's an existing fan base. But that means you have got to work within the canon as set down by the various TV series. And that means you cannot be that creative. And because Discovery have chosen to do things a little differently... That doesn't sit well, I would want, from a Star Trek show. And if they do Stargate, I think they'd have to say, what came before, that all happened. 
we are going forward. We can create anything we want because this is all new. So if they want to take elements from SG-1, from Atlantis, from Universe, that's fine because they're going to evolve, expand on them. They're not going to try to say, oh, we're going to do what happened in the SGC two years before Children of the Gods or as in Stargate Origins 50-odd years before, but in Egypt. In the fact that they are doing a prequel series, just a little web series, does say a lot of how limited they are by by their own creation, by the, by the storyline, of course. And fans get so protective of their own storylines and their own interpretations of those storylines. And it's just you can never – eventually you can never do anything right. Your fans take over and begin controlling and sort of voting yay or nay – on whether or not it not only fits with canon, but their interpretation of canon. It's funny, uh, when Hermione's last mission went up, some what they called goofs appeared on Stargate Wiki. And I read the goofs, I'm like, they didn't understand. I never said this, or I said it here. And yes, Michael did get a hold of the hyperdrive technology. It's not a goof, but whoever put that up had their interpretation of the story sort of supersede the canon. And that's how they remembered it. So we'll see, I guess. I'm painfully aware of the fact that for over a decade, the only Star Trek I had were the novels mm-hmm. from Pocket Books. Not all of them were brilliant. Some of them were incredibly good. And a lot of the ideas from them are what I believe Star Trek should be. You know, some of the character backgrounds, some of the, the very existence of the Constitution-class starships, Enterprise, a five-year mission has been explained so well in some novels, it actually outshines what has been on TV, but it's not canon. Right. So I've always got to remind remind myself, when I'm judging Discovery, when I judge any future Star Trek series, remember, you've got to judge it against a TV show, not what you think is probably one of the best written novels that you've ever read. Well, it's like Star Wars. Star Wars existed in the novels and really for a long time that's what everyone thought they would get and then disney gets a hold of the project and all of a sudden most of the novels are no longer canon of course they're addressing the next generation but i was um, i felt about doctor who how you felt about star trek i was watching it on pbs in america since as long as i can remember and of course it, it died with sylvester mccoy with the seventh doctor because they could no longer afford special effects that and then finally, eventually, they developed the budgets and the private industry to recreate it. And I was very concerned that it would be different. I know Fox tried to relaunch it. And I had to remind myself to sort of let go of the old series, but hold on to it, but don't have a lot of expectations, see it as something new. And my wife, I got my wife to enjoy Doctor Who, and she loves the old series, but she doesn't really care for the new one. To her, it's oh, two different right. yeah, series. It's, although she, she likes Jodie Whittaker a lot. I have no problem with her performance as the Doctor. I think the... I mean, Three Companions is one too many, and I think the actual stories have been a little bit weak. And that's, ex- that's exactly how we feel, yeah. That's the first season. She's going to be doing at least one more season. Signed on for that, so we'll see what they make there. But then again, every new Doctor, I, I can say, well, I'm not too happy with that. But in hindsight, you go, yeah, Eggleston. Yeah, I liked Eggleston. One season, maybe that's all we all we could take of his style of Doctor. You know, Tennant, who doesn't like Tennant? Right. How can you not like Tennant <laughs> in any character? And like I say, Good Omens, we'll have to see what he can do with that. 
Yeah, right. I, I, I completely agree. And I don't think you really appreciate the Doctor until they're on to the next one. That, you know. That's true. They pointed out that every new series of Star Trek, you've had people you know, saying, oh, it's not going to be any good. We don't want to watch it. I don't like it. And then you turn back the time machine and say, well, this is what they said about the previous season series. Well, look, this is exactly what they said about the series before that. So you just, you just got to go with it, aren't you? That's the fan base. And the fan base really treats these things like a religion. If you look at the context that they're they're treating mythology, and of course mythology itself is the original science fiction, it's so important to them. It's a way of life. It really is like Catholicism or Buddhism or Islam in the way the fans treat these stories and the mythologies that have become so important to them in their lives that they fear change so much. And yet, if the series was exactly the same, they'd go, well, there's nothing new here. So you have to give them time. And they're very fickle. That is true. Talking to somebody who spent eight years doing a Stargate podcast, episode by episode. Hats off to that, by the way. I'm quite impressed with that. I'm shocked we managed to do it. I know I'm I'm up, up 110 episodes of What Are You Afraid Of, and it's it's of course it's different. It's you know with horror fiction and ghost stories and so so many interviews, and you just realize you hit 100. Le- it it takes a lot of discipline, and of course you know editing. You could sit there all day and keep editing it the file over and over and over again. Eventually, you have to stop yourself and say it's got to be done. But I appreciate the discipline it takes, and I applaud you, sir, for what you've done with Stargate. The dead demand to be heard, and on What Are You Afraid of Horror and Paranormal Show, Philadelphia's horror home, we listen. New True Ghost Stories, every episode, interviews with paranormal investigators, there is no supernatural. The natural world is just far greater than we can perceive. More information and expanded content at www.whatareyouafraidofpodcast.com. And follow us on Twitter at PFWhatAfraidOf. Find us on all major podcast services, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, iHeartRadio, or listen to us Fridays at 9 p.m. on the Parax Radio Network. I'm horror author T. Fox Dunham. I'm horror author and filmmaker Phil Thomas. So, so what, what are, are you afraid, afraid of? If you like what you hear, leave us a review on your preferred podcast service. What are you afraid of? Horror and paranormal shows. Speak to the dead. Para-X. Right then, back to Hermiard. He doesn't make an appearance in Misbegotten. He is referenced. He appears in McKay and Mrs. Miller, one of the better episodes of Stargate Atlantis. One of the funnier episodes, anyway. Genie gapes at the alien, as it says on the transcript. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I loved the episode too, and it's it's nice to see another character that can get under McKay's skin and has some because she's such a shield to everybody in Atlantis, and he's just so used to being rejected or treated as a socially inadequate person. But when when she comes along, she definitely has definitely has a connection to him, and he loves her. You can tell, and it's, of course, it's real love. It's his sister. Yeah. In, in, and I wanted to mention about McKay, Hermiod's last mission featured Hermiod as a character, as my protagonist. That's how I wrote it. Um, all the scenes are from his view, point of view. That's how, that's how you write them up. And all the conflicts are his to solve. But McKay was sort of the secondary character based on their fun relationship. And writing McKay was another experience. Um, Hermiod, I could create. A lot of it. And there was a lot of things, actually, that Peter DeLuise and the producers of Stargate did not let me 
get away with that they wanted cut from the story because it just went too far, I guess. But when I wrote McKay, it's different when you have to write an established character and you're trying to satisfy the producers and the different authors. So I watched a lot of McKay and I followed David Hewlett's acting style. A lot of the um, verbal things that he does, a lot of the traits, a lot of the little um, idiosyncrasies, like when he's thinking of something, he'll pause and it'll be like, oh, so I suppose you want me to fix the universe now. Rodney, you have 10 seconds. Well, well great. Why, why is it 10 <laughs> seconds? Why is it arbitrary? Okay, 20 seconds. How, you know, and he's like, and then he'll pause. He'll think. It's like, it's impossible. I can't do it. And then he'll snap his fingers. Yes. Oh, I'll rig yes, a, he does. I'll rig a ZPM to a wormhole and create 10 different universes and blow up the ship. And yeah, then so it was a lot of fun watching David Hewlett act and learning those little things that you never really specifically noticed before, but that you can really appreciate his style of acting. We'll jump straight into Hermione's last mission now. We won't we won't cover it in too much detail. I don't want to, I want people to read the story. Oh, me too. Not to have it spoiled, obviously. As you said, Shepard and Co are on a mission. They want to infiltrate a hive ship, uh, learn about who who exactly have the hyperdrive technology that Michael liberated. They have a few problems. Then in the void between galaxies. That's one thing I remember about Midway. Seeing the galaxies filling the screen and realizing just how far away you are from home. That was something I tried to capture in the story. And a lot of, a lot of writing, what you do, you create, you create atmosphere, you create theme and setting. Setting becomes its own kind of character. And when you have the void between universes, you have that feeling of isolation, of nothingness, of eternity, and almost futility. And there's, there's just nothing going around. If they get stuck out there, there's no help coming for weeks there are no stargates they can jump to it was their ship it was the wraith and it was um the other elements out there that i won't go into too much because we want to preserve surprise i did like i mean i reviewed it when the book first came out hermiod who we met on board the daedalus you remember the rather sarcastic one <laughs> make it clear this this is something you want to read well, I appreciate the depth that you gave to each story. That that helps a lot, actually, in reviews. We authors live and die on their reviews, and it's and it's terrible because it's it's so easy for someone to write a negative review, but it's much harder to get them to write a positive, like like to take the time to write a positive review. It seems that negative reviews motivate people more to be vocal, and if it's positive, you sort of say well done, and you don't you don't write anything about it. So I appreciate that. Well, a lot of the time, if you're going to be negative, you don't have to justify yourself, do you? That's very true. And it's it's yeah. really easy to throw rocks at the people that have succeeded. So I appreciate you taking the time to write a review. In Hermione's last mission, this is basically, as you said, the story is canon. It's set in the time before the Asgard leave the story, leave the franchise for good. Nobody listening to this podcast has not seen Stargate. Feel free to talk about that and that the Asgard are dying. The technology finally failed. Their cloning process has hit a brick wall. There are going to be no more Asgard. There's only one more thing to do. What do they do with the technology and the incredible archive of information that they possess? Most of which they have kept to themselves with 
apart from a few little bits and bobs they've allowed to be fitted to the Daedalus mm-hmm. and uh, some of their sister ships. Hermiod's last mission refers to the final question, which has been indicated in a certain SG-1 episode called The Fifth Race. My personal favourite SG-1 episode. Reaching for the stars, becoming more than they are, fulfilling the potential that other races see in them. Through, of course, Jack's eyes in this case, but taken as a whole, can humanity rise above their base instincts and be a force for good? That is the question that Hermiod has got to answer. Right, and it's funny that they picked him because he's the oddball, he's the outcast, the Asgard race, and yet by virtue of the sort of exile to humanity, he has become integrated into the human matrices and culture and developed person. And something I tried to show in the story was that he did sort of had a begrudging relationship with Novak. He did have a relationship with Rodney and he had quietly sat on his console or stand, or I don't think they sleep and watched <laughs> and studied humanity very much from the perspective of this older race and been involved with this crew. I mean, Thor would sort of enlist humanity. And I, I can't always tell if Thor admired them as equals or more kind of like children or even pets at time, the way he was. And he was definitely considering the scope of Commander Supreme Commander Thor's responsibilities. Did, did he, you know, did he sort of see them uh, as children or as like a little brother? I know he liked O'Neill a lot. They were very different. But I, I, I liked the idea that Hermiot was solving this question that he had that he had an unbiased point of view he wasn't sort of invested in the people around him that he was distant and could uh, uh, create a philosophical witness to the asgard council's final question which it's funny the asgard had centuries to observe but when it came down to it to figure out who would inherit their legacy whom they would adopt as the next generation in their culture and carry that legacy. They only had a couple of months, really. Yes, it's it's surprising. No doubt themselves, they knew there were limitations with the cloning technology. They knew that the end would eventually arrive. They probably didn't expect it to be so soon. The decision was, do they share their technology or do they take it with them? As you said, Thor was too close to certain members of the SGC, not sure exactly how he thought of O'Neill. He respected O'Neill. The fact that they built the very latest and best Asgard starship was named the O'Neill pretty much says everything, respect-wise. Whether or not they tr- he considered him a younger brother or a friend or something like that, we don't know. Hermiod, a lot of the time, he was just a fixture in the engine room. Life went on around him. He got to see the good and the bad. Because people didn't take much notice of him. And when they did, they weren't always fawning or after something. He was able to make a logical... The very fact that he was honest. Will they use this technology for war? Yes. They are humans. That's what they do. But they will fight for a reason. They won't fight just for resources, just for their own ego, their own arrogance... They will stand against a darkness. They will support the weak. The very best of humanity is what Hermiod eventually waved the flag for. As I said in my little review, you know, the final line, I was welling up because it may so lovely with the, the episode of The Fifth Race. And that was my intention. 
You write the narrative. You try to find the prose that will most connect to the readers. And they had done they had done such a wonderful job at the end of an ending and in the fifth race that I wanted to. It was kind of a trilogy. The final the final story of the philosophical progression and the evolution of humanity and their relationship with the Asgard from um, lesser race, primitive race that they were observing to friends and companions and allies and then to the heirs. And that's what you see in the stories is that progression of that relationship and the evolution as eventually humanity becomes the caretakers and the heirs to their legacy and the legacy of the ancients and sort of handing them over as caretakers of the galaxy when they eventually grew old and died. So you have a lot of themes there of, of general generation um, progression. And again, I really did go back to the old episodes and look for the quotes, look for the dialogue that would resonate with the fans. So when they read the story, their eyes would tear up that they, and it, it was just such an awesome experience to become sort of the last writer to write the last story, the final legacy of the Asgard. And I'm just so happy that they, they selected me. And there's such a fun story. Uh, I, there's context to it. If you, if you have a few minutes and you'd like to hear the context behind the story. Yes, of course. This was a few years ago, about four years ago. And you know, I'm a cancer survivor. And I was told that at a certain point in my life, um, 20 years after I had the radiation, I had lymphoma when I was younger, you know, I've sort of lived with it my whole life with the chances of it coming back. And I had a very aggressive kind. And it's a miracle that I've made it so far. And as you know, recently, it's still every couple of years, it still comes back in this this massive upset that it could come back and it would take me out in a, in a few months. And I just went through that again. And so I was nearing that time and I just met a young woman, Allison. I was writing a lot at the local Barnes & Noble, local bookstore in Philadelphia. It's a chain of them. And Allison had just become a recent barista. She was saving money for college to go to school as an accountant. And we'd gotten to know each other. We'd fallen in love. And the next step was marriage. And the question was, do I get married and commit to living a longer life? Or do I be nihilistic and accept the idea that I'm going to die soon, that this cancer will come back, or the effects of the radiation and chemotherapy, the damage will eventually get so bad that I'll be crippled and disabled and really not able to start a family and be married. And at the time, I was really pushing my career, and I wrote, I wrote the Stargate people as a lark, as a shot in the dark. I wrote Vandemonium books and said, I have these ideas, this is where I've been published, my book's been developed as a movie, you, you want to give me a go. And I never expected to hear anything back. And I was so amazed when Sally Malcolm wrote me back. And so when I developed the story and I knew I had to really hit the right note with them because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of fans who would give their left kidney to write a Stargate story and contribute to the eventual saga and genre and franchise that you know, so when I wrote the story, I drew a lot from my own personal elements. The idea that we do die, but something of us does go on. I drew a lot from the idea that, because um, I was very much contemplating my own death, and the Asgard were contemplating theirs. So a lot of those themes joined for me. And that's probably part of the reason why I selected the story. And 
it was so positive when they wanted it and I was working on it and I was getting ready to go to Scotland to be married. And the Asgard essentially chose to take a chance on humanity, knowing they had flaws, knowing that they had wrecked the Katal sun, you know, and still they said they're going to make mistakes, but we trust our legacy with them instead of accepting total nihilism and total death and just erasing ourselves from the universe. And a lot of those themes, you know, came from that where Stargate accepted the story, Vandemonium wanted the story, and it was a dream come true for me, just just as a personal, not even as an author, but on a personal basis, being a write that story and contribute to such a magnificent series that I'd loved for years, that it all tied together. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to get married. We're going to go to Scotland. We're going to start a life together. And I choose life. I'm going to live till I'm 100. Cancer's going to come back. And I'm going to fight it, you know. And one day I'll have children as the Asgard had children. So it all ties together. And there's a level for your listeners that, that a lot of the fans probably didn't know. Hope has always got to win the day. Life will out for Doctor Who. <laughs> We will leave Hermiard's last mission there. Let's talk about your other published work. As I said earlier, I have read Mercy and The Street Martyr. Mercy was the first one I read. Enjoyed it quite a lot. It was easy to get into, easy to lose yourself into the story without being too wordy, too over the top. It was incredibly visceral. You were obviously, you were writing pop from experience that goes without saying. I even like the end, which I suppose I should probably should have seen coming, but it's it's not unusual for this sort of story where you think, oh, the hero is wrong to, to actually call William a hero as well, either, I suppose, because he wasn't a good guy. He had his flaws as well. Mercy was definitely, I was into writing great characters. Um, I believe that we're all great, that there are no extremes that there are no exacts that um and i think the best characters we know are vulnerable and do make mistakes and do reflect humanity and you're right it was visceral when i wrote mercy i wanted to write a book where the reader would cringe and hide from some of the medical torture and invasion that was happening that had happened to me that happened to a lot of patients and it is really invasive and it's terrible because this is the sort of thing that they that somebody torturing to you torturing you you would stop you would fight against but when it's a doctor you have to tell yourself let them do it saturday i went and got a cat scan done it was a full body cat scan and and when i walked in they handed me two large vials of white barium dye and there was a part of me that just wanted to say, no, I'm done. I can't do this again. But Allison was sitting next to me and I had to drink it. And I suffered terribly. I had such a horrible reaction to it. I knew that was going to happen. And again, it's what I drew mercy from. That's the horror is the um, violation of the body, of the spirit, of the heart, the, the degradation. And I've been in hospitals where it's that filthy, you know, so... Yeah, you definitely picked up on that. I appreciate it. That's disturbing if there are hospitals like that. There are. There are places where I just you go in and you want to leave because you see leaky pipes, because you see the mold. And especially in the American healthcare system where, where less and less money is going to, towards these sorts of things. And it's very dangerous. And a lot of the medical things that have happened to me have been caused by accidents or secondary infections and just unprofessionalism. 
that happens. I've had a lot of bad doctors in my time that should no longer be practicing. And again, I put a lot of that in mercy because you're so vulnerable and you're at these people's mercy and you depend on them. And if you get a bad one, most likely they'll get away with it. I've been fortunate that I haven't spent any serious time in hospital or any major illnesses. So when I watch a, a medical drama and something like bone marrow extraction or lumbar puncture and you watch that and you, you're just cringing and I see what you mean. This could easily just be a torturer working on their subject, not a medical procedure. The idea of, I can't remember the character's name, the doctor with, with the CAT scan. Oh, oh God, it's going to come. Dr. Man. Yeah, the actual idea that this is a living entity, you know, drawing your flesh, your your soul from you. And you were right. You read. I had no problem getting into the story and into the characters, even though there is, I said, there isn't really a nice character in in any of them. Maybe except for the the janitor, but even he it was a big question mark over his head. Yeah, what was he? We don't know. Yeah. No, exactly. The idea that this hospital was the focal point for an incursion from another reality. Mixing it with demonic elements, the idea of normal doctors, normal nurses, normal people can be not directly infected, but just blemished by being around something that isn't nice, isn't clean. And before you know it, you've gone so far over to one side, there is no going out. Kylie herself. Yes. The more we learn about her, she was broken before he met her, more so than ever William was. He probably could never save her. But she found something in Mercy that he could never do. How much of that was her acceptance of what was coming into this world, we may never know. Disturbing, to say the least. Oh, that's that's very good. With Kylie, she, um, it was his fault. Kylie was who she was, and she accepted herself. She accepted other people. But Willie kept, William kept forcing his idea of what she should be onto her. Instead of loving her for who she was, he loved her for what she could be. And that happens in so many relationships where one person just doesn't accept the flaws and accepts who they are. They keep pushing them to grow and change and become something else they're not because that person is making them into what they want and need, not loving them for who they are. So Willie was definitely, I mean, Kylie did a lot of terrible things and a lot of hurtful things, but Willie was definitely the villain in that relationship because he just kept telling her you're not good enough for me to love like you are what a terrible thing it took a long time for him to realize the mistake he had made throughout the novel he's constantly trying to save her from herself and you think well she's also dead but he's still trying to save her and that is the underlying thing the thing that everybody tried to get through to him you can't save her she is who she is she is what she is now but it was so embedded in, let's say, Willie, not William. He, he couldn't help himself. It almost as if his self-worth was tied to other people's. And isn't that always the story? A lot of younger people have to, to figure that out, that they have to love themselves before they can really give their love to other people. And often we learn to love ourselves from other people. And yeah, so it was definitely about a journey that I had gone through when I was young, figuring out relationships and love and how to love somebody for who they are, yet also be the inspiration in their lives to help them to help them do better, you know, and to help them fight. And there's that, that fine line you have to do where you, where you love somebody, but you also have to make sure they treat you 
properly with, with kindness and consideration. And a little side story for you about Willie in the writing and one I think you'll appreciate being where you're from. When I wrote the character of Willie and William and names are a problem for me, I don't often get stuck on names. I wrote the, the wording of the name Willie differently than I should have. And it was something my wife picked up and she, and it was my wife's mother, my mother-in-law actually, who said, now, wait a minute, don't we usually spell Willie, W-I-L-L-I-E? And she said, I think you have it where people in England are going to read this as a body part, (laughs) as genitalia. Yes, maybe. You spell it with a Y. Exactly. And I looked at it and I said, oh my word. Well, it's just so glad you have people read your work before it's published because I don't think anybody at Bloodbound <laughs> Books would have picked that up. And, you know, wasn't that kind of book? It's often the case when you're reading an American author that some of the phrases and some of some of the word use kind of derails you after a bit. Although I, I think I have read some editors make a point of actually adjusting a novel for different markets. They do. They do. There was two different versions of Harry Potter. There was um, with the um, English slang and the American slang that they did it's a minefield isn't it really <laughs> trying to you know actually make your work available to as big a market as possible knowing the fact that maybe each market has different sensibilities different ideas of uh, what they're looking for right exactly and um again it's sometimes i mean you do have to be conscious of marketing and if you want to be a successful professional author and not just sort of linger in the indie publishers you have to be conscious of marketing you have to write what sells and that's something that i've made it again that whole transition that i made from nihilism and believing i'd be dead or gone you know at the age i am now and then believing that i'd have a career i had to support for another 40 or 50 years i took a year or two wrote less just wrote for some pro sales say once a month and i've done very well with that but i spent that time studying marketing studying how to write stories that sell as opposed to writing the artistic, soulful work that was supposed to, you know, keep speaking to generation and generation after I was long gone. It's a very different animal. Very clear when I read The Street Martyr, After Mercy, that, as you said, you know, that's a crime thriller, crime drama, that does seem more commercially viable than an out-and-out horror novel. I assume that the market is just going to be bigger. Right. Well, there's a lot of ways of learning about the markets. And one of them is to just go into a bookstore, a mini major bookstore, and look at the sections they've devoted because they're in it to make money. And you'll look at the horror section and it's maybe one or two shelves. And you look at sort of crime, literary, thriller, and it's several shelves. Or like the romantic section has four or five shelves and the fantasy section has two or three. And even in horror, um, it is it is a limited market. People like horror, but the bigger markets are in the crime thrillers, are in the suspense, are in the sort of the non-genre works. And if you want to be a successful author, you need to learn what sells. Yeah. I enjoyed The Street Martyr for different reasons than Mercy. It was more grounded. It was more realistic. It was dealing with the darker parts of humanity. Vincent, I think, was a good character. Again, as you've pointed out, Shades of Grey. There was goodness in him. There was some light in this character. Yet his situation, his upbringing, what he had to deal with meant he really got to express that. He had the love of his local Catholic priest. 
so much so that he was willing to do something rather drastic for him, which kind of got the whole narrative rolling. I, I really enjoyed the fact that of all his time looking down on the homeless, the disenfranchised, that was where ultimately he was safest. This element of the population that were beyond notice, were, were thrown out. I can see why people, you know, businesses are interested in trying to adapt this for television. This would work in television. Well, hopefully it'll get there. They said they're they're working on it right now. They're they're working with Netflix, the producers who want the right to the books through line films. They've also done the Ozarks on Netflix. That is a that's an awesome show. So they want to sort of do a companion piece to the Ozarks set in yeah. the city. And originally we had a movie script, but everything's changed so much. The the way the genres have changed, the way streaming has changed everything. And now instead of doing movies. People want these episodic sagas. They want these 12-part miniseries. And so the whole concept has had to be reconsidered. I wrote The Street Martyr, and it's funny. You, you talked about the brevity of my work and how I don't do these large productions like Stephen King. I'm a short story author. That's what I learned growing up. That's where I put my energy. I emulated authors like Ray Bradbury, who I really wanted to, to write like. So I was terrified of long fiction novels. And when I started The Street Martyr, it was an experiment for me to learn how to write long fiction. And I picked a Flash story that I did for Flash Fiction Offensive called Kid Louie, who was a secondary character. Yeah, Kid Louie. And it was all about this crazy, it was a thousand word story about Kid Louie and um, how you didn't call him Kid Louie and he'd punch your lights out if you did. And I took that and ran with it because it was so successful with the readers. But I'd only intended to write a 15,000-word long story or a 20,000-word novella. The concept of a book terrified me, and these were supposed to be baby steps. And I developed this process of writing the book, and when it ended up being 50,000 words, I was so delighted (laughs) that I had made it that far. So a lot of these books that you're talking about that I wrote were experiments, and you can probably see that. I'm still learning. I'm still figuring out. I'm still experimenting in crime thrillers or horror or literary humor and spiritualism and marketing. And I'm still very much developing my voice and style after all these years later. I've, I've let myself take the time that I've needed as I've been writing marketable fiction and making money the whole time on the side. And I, I chose Philadelphia. Of course, I live here. And I've seen these things about Philadelphia. I saw this with the homeless. And the first thing you do when someone homeless is coming up to you with their hand out is you look away. You block them out. You don't engage them at all. And I realized that somebody pretending to be homeless would never be seen by the police, would never be seen by the mafia. They would, in effect, be invisible. And The Street Martyr is very much about poverty. Uh, Poverty is what drives crime. Poverty is what drives people to live this this life and, and survive in these environments. And there are different ways that people try to escape poverty. And the sort of the core elements, religion, crime, you know, and so otherwise you just sort of be on the street and have no options. So that's that's what the street martyr came from was poverty. It seems such a simple solution that if you can raise people out of that poverty, then crime would also fall. Yet you get the impression that society as a whole wants there to be this level of the population. There's a need for it. But we always have castes, yeah. We have castes in our society. 
the question of immigration right now is a big one in the United States. And I, I think that's sort of the, when a nation hits its old age, it starts limiting access. And the thing is, people are like, why don't they just start arresting immigrants for breaking the law and punishing them? And it's like, well, it's because many industries in America still depend on immigration as a cheap source of labor with with illegal aliens coming in that they don't have to pay very much they don't have to register in the system they don't have to give medical insurance to and when they're done with this disposable labor they can just send them back across the border and there's so many uh, farming industries and cheap manual industries that americans no longer want to do so they want to create this balance where they're letting less people in but they don't want to stop the flow and it's very dehumanizing people have got to remember that you get rid of the lowest level of society, whether they are citizens or not, then there is another lower level of society who will be exploited. And before long, it might be you at that lowest level of society where four or five years ago, you were doing okay for yourself, but suddenly your rights, your privileges, what your taxes buy you no longer work. It's the old adage, you know, they came from my next door neighbor and I looked away. They came from my brother and I looked away and then they came for me. It's a situation where a lot of not only America, but Western Europe, we're going through it at the moment with our idea that what a great idea to leave an economic powerhouse like the European Union, because obviously we can do such a better job by ourselves. While at the same time, we rely on immigrant labor, more legal than not so, to fill thousands of places in the National Health Service to take those jobs that British workers think oh, don't pay enough. You think, well, what's going to happen if they're no longer available? We'll start wondering what did they do to themselves when the government says, now you have got to work in these jobs because you're not going to get welfare payments anymore. And this whole idea that a great idea of somebody rising above themselves to do the right thing, knowing the consequences that we see in Vincent in the street martyr, he expected to die. He probably never expected the result they got without giving anything away. But he was going to try anyway. And that ultimately is the essence of a good story. A character that may not be the greatest to begin with, may not be make the right decisions, make some terrible decisions, does the right thing for the right reason, even when it probably isn't going to do him any good. All right, well, he had a good role model in Father Gabe. Yes, yes, he did. Well, he had his own secrets, of course, but it was um, rising up. And sometimes it is the right person at the right time who can make all the difference in your life. And he, and it's funny, you said he was expecting to die. And another secret for you, the original writing of the book had him die at the end. That was my idea, was that this sort of tight little package. And the editors came in and said, well, we'd like him to live at the end, you know, to sort of continue the story. So, and... It did become, I mean, I had this whole scene written out where he barricaded himself in the church and he exposed the bad guys and eventually they shoot him down like a dog as he's trying to come out. And, you know, so they're very unfair and tragic and all that, but it would have been expected. It would have been cliche. So the editors said, we'd like to do something different. And you're right. It is very surprising when he survives at the end. And I think it ends the book on the right note, you know, and of course it leaves room open for more stories. <laughs> yep, which you've always got to consider being an author who's looking to get paid work. I am actually. Yeah. I was bored of the idea. I'm bored of the old stories and the old characters. I want to go on to new stories and characters. But 
lately as I've been considering my options. And I'll tell you, writing a novel is a massive use of resources and time. And when you've written it, you have to support it for years. It's like having a child. It really isn't. I know many authors who write 30 books and just keep pushing them out and just hitting that word count. They're not very good. And they throw this book out. They put it on Amazon. No one reads it and they don't support it, and they just move on to the next one and no one's ever heard of them. So you have to pick your books. You have to select your stories and you have to think about the ones that will market well if you want to build a career. And you seem to be on the right track. I'm trying. I really am. But in the <laughs> end, it really does come down to being at the right place, the right time. Much in life is that. Wherever you think you're going, Whatever you plan, forget it, because in the next, it's just like my wife's looking for a job right now after graduating UNC. She's an excellent accountant. Any Stargate fans out there that need a good accountant at a good at a good raise, just, you know, <laughs> send me over an email at tfoxdunhamgmail.com. Thank you very much. But as I often tell her, don't get too upset about failures and disappointments, because wherever we end up, we have no idea where that's going to be right now. It's going to be so different. From, from whatever we planned. And it is about being at the right place at the right time. It is very much about fate. But again, Stargate, like this, the Stargate story that, that brought me here, that was a shot in the dark. That was a written letter, I typed it out. They did not email because they did not accept things from other authors email-wise, because otherwise they'd get a thousand a day. They wanted manuscripts. They wanted written letters to Fandemodium. And so I wrote it all out, I planned it, and I had to take it to the post office to get international mailing, and I expected to send it off and never hear from them again. You know, you never hear from them. You know, so that's what you have to do. You have to take chances. But what did I spend? What resources did I really commit? A day and a couple of dollars. And that hit the mark. It did exactly what I needed it to do. And of course, I've I've always hoped to go on and write more for them, and perhaps I will one day, and I know it's it's limited right now, but that experience has been incredible. Excellent. That's the beauty of Stargate. There's room for, for everybody throughout the media. We can hope that TV-wise there is a little fruit bearing, or vine bearing a bit of fruit over there. Maybe, maybe a couple of years before we ever hear anything, but who knows. Hopefully Pandemonium release a few more Stargate novels in the meantime. I'd definitely like to see a few more anthologies bringing both existing and new authors into the franchise. That's the best way to invigorate something, bring new blood in. Let's see what other people can uh, take from it instead of relying on existing authors who, who know the series very well, who will always deliver, but maybe something a little bit different. Right. And that's what we got. And if you want to see T. Fox Dunham writing another Stargate story, contact him over at Fandemonium, tell him you love the story, and he, they, he should really write something else. <laughs> Excellent. I think that's a great way to wrap up this interview then. Yes, I, uh, I plead to your fans. Please, please, please help. <laughs> but anyway, if you like my work, check out my website. I'm still working on it, www.tfoxdunham.com. Of course, you can find me at amazon.com. There's Mercy, there's The Street Martyr. And I can understand why you didn't pick Andy, because it's a very long... <laughs> yeah, the other ones were definitely more compelling and more exciting, though Andy provides other elements. And I appreciate the time you took to read them. I'm actually surprised I didn't realize that you had known that about me, that I was a cancer survivor and that you had read my books. And I'm, I'm quite delighted by that. And of course, check out my show at www.whatareyouafraidofpodcast.com. We have 111 episodes. We 
interviewed horror authors and movie stars and movie directors and paranormal investigators from television and, and different authors and done tons of horror fiction and ghost stories and just zombies and lots of fun. There you go, then. That's all the recommendation you need. Thank you very much, Fox, for giving me well, well over two hours, a little bit longer than I anticipated, but interesting conversation, nevertheless. It's been fun. It really has, and I, and I enjoyed geeking out about Stargate with you. Uh, that's the only reason I do it, because I like talking Stargate. <laughs> right then, you have a good day. Take care. And don't forget, my friend, you are the fifth race. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Right then, folks, thank you for listening. We will be returning uh, shortly. Until then, though, take care. Uh, I've been Mike. And I'm Fox. T. Fox Dunham. There you go, then. Yeah.